0: The title of the message is called The Power of One. Um, We're at part three behind the scenes. And um, I don't know if you've ever thought about how powerful you are as one single person. We're going to look at three different people this morning in this story of Esther where they really made some very conscious decisions. One that regarded loyalty, one that involved their conviction, and one that involved their anger. And what a catastrophic effect and how much power those decisions were. We're making, I want to read to you a couple of quotes that I found this week that I thought were really appropriate. It says, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. That's what Bill's doing down at the square. There's only one of you. You're the only person with your exact heritage, your precise series of events in the pilgrimage and sufferings of life that have brought you to this hour. You're the only one with your personal convictions, your makeup, your skills, your appearance, your touch, your voice, your style, your surroundings, your sphere of influence. You're the only one. Interesting. You know, one, the power of one is really fascinating if you go out throughout history. And and do you realize in 1776, there was only one, one vote that gave America the English language instead of German? In 1845, it was one vote that brought Texas into the Union. Um, In 1876, it was one vote that, that gave Rutherford B. Hayes the U.S. presidency. And it was in 19, I believe, 23, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. And in 1941, there was just one vote that saved the selective service system just 12 weeks before Pearl Harbor. It's amazing how one person can have such great influence. And this morning we're going to see that as we dive into the story again, and we're going to pick up the story uh, in verse 21 of chapter 2. So follow along with me, if you will. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, I want you to say during the time, I want you to go back here. You remember when, when we started this story, King Xerxes was on the throne for three years. Uh, it was four years later when when uh, Esther became queen. This looks like about another five-year span goes by. So now Esther's been queen for approximately five years, and Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And your first thought was, what was he doing by the king's gate? Well, apparently he was. From what some historians tell us, is that he was probably somehow an employee of the king of the palace. He was a trusted member of his staff, and he was, uh, some people think that he was involved in somehow with the king's treasury. So that gives you a little background of why he was sitting at the king's gate. But while he was there, obviously, he heard Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king giving credit to Mordecai. Keep that in mind. That's going to come back and be helpful later on in the story. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. I want you to notice some things about Mordecai. He was obviously employee of the king. He was a trusted employee. And uh, as an employee of the king, he was required to obviously be loyal to his boss. And in that regard, when he heard these two guys conspiring to assassinate the king, he felt that that it was really important to blow the whistle on these guys. And so he blows the whistle and he goes to Esther and he says, Esther, you need to tell the king. Now that could have been very risky because these officials certainly were probably more prominent than Mordecai. And so it could have been a huge risk for him because those guys could have turned on him at that point, knowing that he was probably the whistleblower in their lives. But based upon the investigation, they did discover that these guys, in fact, were conspiring to kill the king. And therefore, it was really an important piece in Mordecai's repertoire, as we see later on in the story. But I want you to hear this principle. The first one is this. Sometimes God directs behind the scenes by putting us in the right place at the right time. I mean, who would have orchestrated this where Mordecai is sitting at the the palace gates and he overhears these two guys conspiring? You know, just kind of being at the right place at the right time. And it's amazing. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life where you've been involved in circumstances where God just sort of has you at the right place at the right time. Uh, Pastor Frank was telling me just a couple of weeks ago that, uh, Kathy, his wife was down in the Valley visiting her mom and she was staying with her mom and it was late in the evening and she was on her computer and her mom comes out into the living room and is just very, very ill. And she's not doing very well at all. Well, Frank told me that it said when they, when they go down there, they never rent a car. And, uh, but they decided that they would rent a car at this time. And so consequently, Kathy was desperately concerned about her mom. And so she happened to have the rental car at the right place at the right time. And she drove her immediately to the hospital and found out her mom was having a heart attack. Now, she hadn't been there At that day, that moment, and she hadn't been in that living room on the computer and hadn't had the rental car, they would have probably, her mom may have passed away, but she saved her mom's life. Being at the right place at the right time, it's really fun, isn't it, sometimes to be at the right place at the right time? It's also frustrating when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, like on I-17 when there's a three-mile backup, right? But sometimes you wonder, even those circumstances, God is behind the scenes. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but here's principle number two. There's nothing more powerful than having one person's uncompromising loyalty. See, what what I see here in Mordecai is that even though he wasn't probably a big fan of a Persian king, and certainly the Persians didn't like at all the Jews, but nonetheless he was still an employee and he had had a, a sense of loyalty to his boss and so consequently he took the risk knowing that it might be something that he might pay a heavy price for but it, he wanted to do the right thing because he was loyal to the king and my question to us this morning do we have those people in our lives like that if you're a boss is there somebody on your staff that really has that that has your back I mean, somebody besides your spouse, I guess is what I'm saying. A, a person in your life where you, they'll speak the truth to you. They, they cover you. They, they always have your back, you know? And are you the kind of person that they can count on? You know, being a whistleblower sometimes is really a difficult thing. I, I remember back in the day when I was first teaching school back in, in West, western Iowa, out in the rural country, and the school, the town that I was teaching, it was a town of 300 and, and I had a classroom full of fifth and sixth graders, and um, they literally drove me up the wall. But nonetheless, I worked really hard. Well, when teacher-parent conferences came along, um, uh, the president of the school board was one of my students' parents. And he came into the, cl- uh, into the classroom on um, parent-teacher conferences, and he said, Tom, how's it going? And I said, well, frankly, Mr. Buchanan, it's not going very well. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm expected to teach these kids individualized reading program. And we have no books in the, in the library. We don't even really have a library. We don't have a resource center. These kids are, are suffering because we're in a consolidated school system. And th- our little town is being left out of the picture. And it's not fair. And he said, well, I said, I'll, I'll say this in confidence. So please, you know, keep this confidential. But this is a real problem right now. Well, he went straight to the superintendent's office, bypassed the principal, and went to the superintendent's office, and boy, did I ever get into trouble. I mean, my evaluations went way down, and I got really uh, spoken to by the principal, and it was really a heavy price for me to pay. But by golly, within a week, we had books in the library, we had a television for a resource center, and it was a heavy price to pay, but God honored that, even though I had to pay the price. So, But I was loyal to my kids, I wanted those kids to have the right kind of education. So sometimes loyalty can be very risky, but nonetheless, this was an opportunity for Mordecai to stand, be a stand-up guy and be loyal. And you notice it was recorded in the annals, and you're going to see how that's going to come back to play later on in the story, as many of you know the story. Well, I want to move on because we, we're going to see that there's a change. Now, there's a transition in the story, and the transition comes, and let's take a look at the next slide. In Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see how the, 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 the story begins to accelerate here. And it says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hammedatha. And we say after these events, I'm thinking of that now he's probably in the 12th year of his reign. And I want you to notice that he was an Agagite. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So this guy Haman was an Agagite. And we're going to uh, let me give you a little background on that right now. Uh, an Agagite was in relationship to the Amalekites. That was a generation beyond the Amalekites. And if you know anything about biblical history, you know that the Amalekites were always the thorn in the flesh with the Jews. And when Saul was king, Saul absolutely destroyed the Amalekites, and yet he didn't fully destroy them, and so he was held accountable, and he was confronted with the fact that when I told you to destroy them, all of their sheep and their herds and all of that, you didn't follow through. And by the way, you even let the king, whose name was Agag, stay alive. And so consequently, because Saul got convicted about that, he put Agag to death. So now you get the picture here. Here's Haman. He's an Agagite, right? And he's generationally, a few generations removed, and there was this extreme hatred by the Agagites or the Amalekites historically against the Jews. So when, uh, let's move on to the story. So that gives you a little bit of background. So all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pray him and give him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So here's this guy. He is elevated to the highest place in the the most powerful kingdom on the planet at the time, number two in command, and because of that, he was demanding everybody pay honor to him. His ego was bigger than life. And this guy uh, wanted everybody to bow down to him, but Mordecai said, no way, I'm not going to bow down to him. I'm a Jew and Jews were told via the Torah that, listen, you don't have any other gods before you. You don't bow down to anybody, but God himself. And so he refused, which was taking a big risk. See, Mordecai had a conviction that he was not going to bow down to anybody other than God himself. This is principle number three. One person's conviction can have an enormous impact for good or for evil. In this case, it was a very difficult choice that he made. He did not understand or realize the impact of his decision not to bow down to Haman. And you'll pick up the story here because Haman was very, very angry and enraged by that. And yet he still stood his ground. Mordecai stood his ground. Now, many of us would look at this and say, why wouldn't Mordecai just bend and, and just have, you know, take instead of taking this risk, why not just bow down to him and compromise? Well, it's because he had a conviction. And I really believe that, that for a lot of us, this is really an important piece, that we need to have convictions in our lives. And sometimes those convictions can cost us, not only for, for, uh, for evil, but it can also be for good. And so here we see a picture of this with Mordecai's decision. Little did he know what an impact that was going to have. We'll get to that in just a second. But the point is, is that I think there's a lot of Christians today who would rather bow down to, if you will, that idol rather than to have a strong conviction and draw a godly line in their, in their lives, So I think it's really, really important for us to be men and women of conviction. And what's happened today is I think that culture has so impacted believers' lives today that we have a tendency to maybe have biases or prejudices, you know what I mean? And we have preferences, but when really push comes to shove, we have a tendency to move the line. And here was a guy that said, no way, I'm not moving the line here. This is something between me and God that I've decided, and I'm not going to bend or bow down to anybody except Almighty God himself. And I love this about Mordecai, not knowing what the consequences of that decision would be. And I'm wondering if you are the type of person or the type of believer that really has godly convictions in your life, whether, a, whether, whether it brings about good or even an evil, it doesn't really matter. You've got the line drawn. So that's where we're at with Mordecai. And I love this about him. But the problem was it enraged Haman because he hated Jews based upon what I told you earlier in the historical situation here. But what I find interesting is that when even when God seems to have a negative consequence to drawing convictions, he's still at work behind the scenes. Why do I say that? When you think about this, you think about what's going down with ISIS these days. And you see Christians all uh, over in the Middle East getting their heads cut off and brutalized and their, their women raped and children being raped. What's happened is now even the Muslim community, the the the, the, the non-radical Muslims, are starting to rise up some and seeing that this is just brutality at its worst. And many Muslims, because of that, they're, they're they're opening their eyes and their lives to Christianity. And you're seeing hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming to Jesus every day. And then I think about other people that are in the communist regime. When we had Jonathan here last week, and we're telling the story about a pastor's wife who was buried alive in China for her faith. And yet the underground church is just exploding in China. Praise God for that. These are, these are people who have strong convictions, and as a result, it seems like it's not for good, but it really ultimately is, is for good. I think about the early church when they were persecuted and dispersed all over the Middle East. Back in the book of Acts, what was happening? The gospel was going out all over the world because of the dispersion and the, and the martyrdom of the Christians. So I see when we do have convictions, sometimes it looks like it's for evil, but it's really desperate. And yet God ultimately is working his plan for good. So convictions, do we have them in our own life? We're going we're to review that in a little bit at the end of the message. Here's the third particular person so we have a person who now has number one expressed himself with loyalty which had a huge impact on the kingdom and now we see a man of conviction which had a horrible impact at least at that particular time on his people so let's move on in the story let's read verses five and six when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor he was enraged yet having learned who Mordecai's people were he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. We're talking about the original Holocaust here. We're talking about a guy who made a decree, and you're going to see that as we get into this story further, how he manipulates the king into making a decree to annihilate every Jew that was in exile there in their kingdom. Now, if you were at that point Mordecai, I would say, if I were Mordecai, I'd be mortified. My decision, one conviction that I had that I refused about El now is costing my entire people their lives. Can you imagine what responsibility and burden of that must have been on Mordecai's life? And you see here, one man's anger having a devastating effect on his people. And that's principle number four. The anger of one influential person can have a devastating fact, effect on many other people's lives. And, and you think about this, uh, you know, what about an angry dad? And what a, what a catastrophic effect it has on the family if you have a, a dad who has an anger problem. What, what about the boss that has an anger problem and, and he's at a place of influence? And what does it do to the employees and to the morale of the employees who know that this guy could go off at any minute? What about that that husband or that child who has uh, anger issues that are unresolved and what a devastating effect it can have on their entire family? What about pastors who have anger problems? And I've met several of them over the last 10 years of my life that have anger problems. I can even remember back when I was uh, playing softball at Iowa and it was, the pastor was the pitcher. You know, it seems like the pastor's always the pitcher. I don't know why, but anyways, he was pitching and, and he would argue with the umpire and he would argue with the other team and he would lose himself. And it was so embarrassing. The whole church kind of felt embarrassed about having him on the softball field because he had an anger issue. Anger is so devastating It's so devastating. And here was a man whose anger was so at the very height and his ego was so prominent in this, he decides, you know what? I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to kill all the Jews. And we're going to take up the rest of that story in the coming weeks. But I want to stop right here because I think there's some things that you and I can really glean from this that I think what God is really trying to teach us this morning. And the first thing is this. Every one of us needs loyal support. We've got to have it in our lives. It's really hard to, to stand alone and not know that there are people out there that really have your back and really love you. That's why we have community groups here at the church. That's why we, you know, we try to create a sense of community and harmony so that when there's somebody struggling, that one part of the body hurts, we all hurt, you know what I mean? And we all kind of share those burdens. We need people on our lives. We can't do this thing alone called living life. We need people in our lives who are honest enough to tell us the truth and have our back and to love us. I had to be confronted with that in my own life this past week. I, I told a bunch of pastors when I left the, the consulting side of, of my career, and, and I said, Guys, you know, if you ever need anything, just call me. I said, I, I don't, I, you know, I'd love you guys, and I want to make sure that I stay in touch with you. Well, I got a call from a young pastor in Yuma, Arizona, and he's struggling, and he's battling, and he's making all kinds of rookie mistakes, and he's alienated the entire worship team and a whole bunch of people in the church. And so he calls me, he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, look, if you want me to fly out there, I'll fly out there and we'll talk. He said, would you? And I said, yeah, I would. I I want to have your back. I want to help you. I want to be committed to you. I want to be loyal to you. And he so appreciated that. And I'm just wondering, can you be counted on in those times maybe when it's not as convenient, when it's not as easy, but you've got somebody's back and they know, they know you, you've got their back. It's a critical component and I think what Mordecai really tells us is really how badly we need each other. There's a great scripture in Ecclesiastes that some of you know and it says this, it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We need each other, amen? We need people in our lives that have our back. There's a second thing that I gleaned out of this part of the story, and that's this. Every Christian should have biblically-based convictions that are uncompromised. I see this in Mordecai's life, but I don't often see it in the lives of a lot of Christian people today. It seems like Christians today are becoming more cultural Christians than they are convicted Christians, where they really understand between them and the Lord, that there's a line that's been drawn in their lives between them and God, a personal conviction, not a bias, not a prejudice, but something that God has spoken to them about. And here we're not going over that line in Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, verse five, it says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be what? Fully convinced in his own mind. Fully convinced in his own mind. You cannot have somebody else's convictions. You've got to have your own convictions. And how many of us spend the time to go to God's word and go to God on an individual basis and say, God, where do you want me to draw the line in my life? Where do you want me to have a standard? Where do you want me to have a boundary? And when you have that boundary, you don't move the line when you're confronted with backlash or the culture. And sometimes I think what's happened is that Christians have become so watered down by the culture, we've lost our ability to really be salt and light in a community that's really struggling. So every Christian should have biblically-based convictions that are uncompromised. Here's the third thing that I've gotten from this particular passage. Never underestimate the devastating effect of one's person's uncontrollable anger. You know, I get out enough with the sheriff's department to see that domestic violence is just a rampant problem in Prescott, the Tri-City area, and all over the country. And a lot of it is because somebody has uncontrolled anger. There's another scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not what? This is scary. Give the devil a foothold. When anger goes uncontrolled, we are giving Satan an open door to our lives to create bitterness and hatred and malice towards people. And when that goes unchecked, it can be a devastating thing, not only to you, but to all those people that you have contact with and have influence over. And here was a man who probably was harboring anger, Haman, who was harboring anger and bitterness generationally because of what, what happened to his, his, um, the Amalekites and to Agag, that he was still embittered by it. And as a result, not only wanted to kill Mordecai, but everybody. So never underestimate the devastating effect of one person's uncontrolled anger. Here's the fourth thing. I love this. God uses all kinds of people and circumstances to ultimately work his plan behind the scenes. If there's one thing that I'm hoping that we're going to get out of this story, and that's why we call it behind the scenes, is that has, was God using Haman right then? Yeah, he was. Was he using his anger to ultimately create a plan for Esther to really deliver the people? Yeah, he was. It seems odd, it seems confusing, it seems weird that God would choose that route. Did he use one man's conviction in that particular instance to have such a devastating effect on his people? Did God Was God in that? Yeah, he was. And I think the point I want to really drive home for all of us, because I get frustrated too. I mean, some of you are probably in the midst of maybe some difficult or confusing circumstances where you feel like, you know, I don't get it. God, are, are you in this? Are, are, you, are you doing this? You know, and I go back to the Romans eight twenty eight where it says, all things work together for good, who are called according to his purpose, who love the Lord. You know, I, I think about that and I say, yeah, but you're, you're working your plan. He's working his plan. And friend, I don't know how difficult your circumstances are, but he's working a plan. And you know what I've noticed? Sometimes we don't think he's working his plan fast enough. You know, anybody, anybody like that? You know, like, gosh, God, if you've got a good plan here and you've got a good outcome, will you just hurry up? You know, I don't like going through this. And then there's times where, you know, maybe God works a little too quickly. I, I was having a conversation with Joanne Wallace, whose husband passed away last Monday. You, many of you know Don. And you know what Joanne told me? She said, you know, I guess I didn't think that God would take him home so quickly. And I thought, you know, that's really an interesting statement. Because sometimes God maybe works a little faster than we'd like too. But aren't you glad that he knows what he's doing? And he had a reason and a purpose by taking Don home when he did? You see, it's really critical that we understand this. We talk about God's sovereignty so often. And I get just as frustrated as you do. I want things to happen in people's lives right now. God, will you get your plan in gear for crying out loud? I'm getting impatient. And God's saying, listen, hey, for me, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. I got it all under control. Ultimately, I'm, I'm working the plan. I'm working the plan. Just shut up, relax, sit down, and be quiet, okay? I mean, that's how I feel some days. But I want you to remember that even in this situation, he was using a Haman, an angry, enraged egomaniac, to accomplish his plan. He was using Mordecai, a man of conviction, and a man of loyalty, to work his plan. Worker's plan, and we're going to see how that plan unfolds in the days that are ahead in the rest of the book. But finally, I want to leave you with one more thought, and it's where we started this morning. Never underestimate the power of one. You have a very powerful place. And God has put you in a very special place. And God has given you and empowered you with certain gifts and abilities. And, and I look at, at Bill here on the screen a little bit earlier. And here's a guy who's a sculptor, an artist, a, a retired industrial arts teacher. But God's using him in the courthouse square to minister to all kinds of people. And who would have, who would have thought that he would have met Gary that day? Remember? Remember? And Gary was here in the first service, all excited to be back in church again. Who would, have, who would have thought that by Bill, being a sculptor and an artist would have that kind of an impact and be able to share his faith and to see Gary respond in that way? What I'm saying is, is that God can use you and don't underestimate how God's wired you and put you together because the decisions you make, the convictions you have, the type of loyalty that you have can all be used to have a real impact for his kingdom. Amen. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. I think about Moses, one guy, and what did he do? He led his people out of captivity. I think of Elijah, who one day prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And when he prayed again, it rained. The power of his prayer that God has given him. I think of Elisha and the many miracles that he did. Raising people from the dead. One guy, the one disciple, and the impact that one disciple would have on the, on, the, on the kingdom, turning the world upside down. There was one Paul, and what did Paul do? He wrote half of the New Testament and had an incredible impact in all of southern Europe. And I think about Mordecai, and I think about Esther, and we're going to see that in the days that are ahead. Don't underestimate what God is doing in your life and what he can do through you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just this short clip of this story as we dig into it a little bit deeper each week. I thank you for a guy like Mordecai that even though he probably wasn't that fond of the king, but he maintained his loyalty and commitment. God help us, those of us that are in the workplace, that we would maintain loyalty to those people who are in authority over us. They would, that we would be the kind of person that when people are around us would know that we have their back. God, I pray too that um, you would be, help us to be men and women of conviction, that we would take the time to get together with you and to have those come to Jesus moments where you say, no, this is where you draw the line. This is where you have boundaries, Tom. And don't bend the line when the pressure comes. I thank you, God, for using a guy like Bill the power of one is having an impact in the courthouse square with homeless people, with rehab people, with tourists, and with kids. God thank you for a guy that's willing to be used. Remind us of that in our own lives, knowing that in this particular story, Mordecai was used in a wonderful way as a part of your ultimate plan. And more than anything, God, I pray that all of us would get it. That we would know that no matter what the circumstances are, You can turn all of that into good because you're working your plan behind the scenes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.